Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. (laughs) Thank you for joining me this Friday, November 18th. I have to laugh because... Every Friday, you know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, we'll just open the phone lines. We'll take a really relaxed look back at the news of the week. But every Friday, it's like fire hose time once again. So, yeah, a lot has happened this week. We are going to spend the first half of this show talking about it. You and me, 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. What did you think was interesting or do you want to comment on about the news of the week? Thought Nancy Pelosi bowing out of Democratic leadership in the House was going to be our huge story. Um, But no, but no, Merrick Garland dropping a bomb. You know, um, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you caught this, but just within the last day or two, remember the January 6th committee, the members of that committee kept being asked if they were going to basically recommend that the DOJ bring charges. And they kept saying all along, no, you know, that's not our job. That's the DOJ's job. And we're just going to give them all the interviews and information we've collected and let them, you know, go forward. Just in the last couple of days, Jamie Raskin without a lot of fanfare, started saying something else. He said, indeed, that the January 6th committee was going to recommend to the DOJ that crimes, that that evidence that they felt they had of crimes committed, that they were going to recommend that the DOJ act on this. I wonder if that lit a little tiny bitty fire under Merrick Garland. Because everybody's been like, you know, this information is is available. It's been available for months. And where's the DOJ? Um, and, you know, we said all along that the concern was that Merrick Garland, who doesn't seem to have a lot of he, he brought a judge's sort of neutrality to the DOJ as opposed to a prosecutorial fire, which is what a lot of people wanted to see, including a lot of other prosecutors. But, um, you know, he's now being faced with boxed into a corner and people were saying that, you know, he's obviously, you know, very reluctant to bring charges against Trump. And will that reluctance multiply if Trump comes out and says he's a presidential candidate because we all knew what was going to happen. Donald Trump comes out and says he's going to be a candidate for president. And then belatedly, Merrick Garland decides there are charges he needs to bring. Trump's just going to go, look at that. Look at that. They've had a year. They've had two years to do this. I declare that I'm a candidate. All of a sudden, there's charges. So um, Merrick Garland kind of answered both of his critics He uh, let the January 6th committee know that he is not going to sit on his hands in this matter. You know, he kept saying nobody's above the law, but that's not how he was acting. But um, he's letting the January 6th committee know that he is willing to pursue this. He is also sending a message to Donald Trump that nobody's above the law. 
And uh, he's trying to keep the DOJ out of politics. How did he accomplish this? Well, you just heard it at the top of the hour. He has decided to name a special counsel, an independent special counsel who is going to look into all of the evidence, all of the charges, all of the accusations, and decide whether or not charges should be brought. The good news is that Merrick Garland hopefully has taken the politics out of this. The bad news is that this guy, Jack Smith, that he picked has been working at The Hague in the Netherlands. So he's not exactly 100% up to speed on everything, which means, in case you were wondering, more delays. More delays. So Merrick Garland surprised us all by just a couple of hours ago coming out in front of the cameras, telling us all this. First thing he told us is what he wants the special counsel to look into, which particular charges. Listen to this. I'm here today to announce the appointment of a special counsel in connection with two ongoing criminal investigations that have received significant public attention. The first, as described in court filings in the District of Columbia, is the investigation into into whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election or the certification of the Electoral College vote held on or about January 6, 2021. The second is the ongoing investigation involving classified documents and other presidential records, as well as the possible obstruction of that investigation, referenced and described in court filings in a pending matter in the Southern District of Florida. So they're looking into both January 6th and the classified documents that Trump was squirreling away at Mar-a-Lago. Kind of giving him, giving this special prosecutor all of it, kind of makes you wonder why on earth they waited so long to do this. I mean, Merrick Garland clearly doesn't have the stomach for the DOJ to go after Trump. Why not appoint a special prosecutor months ago? Anyway, so Jack Smith, who is Jack Smith? Not exactly a household name, though he certainly has a very impressive pedigree that uh, Merrick Garland walked us through today, right after he made the announcement. So listen to this. Today, I signed an order appointing Jack Smith to serve as special counsel. The order authorizes him to continue the ongoing investigation into both of the matters that I have just described and to prosecute any federal crimes that may arise from those investigations. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. He began his prosecutorial career in 1994 as an assistant district attorney with the New York County DA's office. In 1999, he became an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, where over the course of nine years, he prosecuted matters ranging from gang murders of police officers to civil rights violations. From 2008 to 2010, he served with the International Criminal Court, where he supervised war crimes investigations. In 2010, Mr. Smith returned to the Justice Department to serve as Chief of the Public Integrity Section, where he led a team of more than 30 prosecutors who handled public corruption and election crimes cases across the United States. In 2015, he agreed to serve as the first assistant U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Tennessee, later becoming the acting United States attorney. 
Most recently, Mr. Smith served as a chief prosecutor for the special court in The Hague, charged with investigating and adjudicating war crimes in Kosovo. What I want to know, though, did Merrick Garland tap someone who is cut from the same cloth as Merrick Garland? In other words, let's study it. Let's study it. Let's study it some more. Let's study it from a different angle. Let's think about it. Let's think about it. Okay. Are we sure that there's absolutely no chance of us losing? Because if a prosecutor wants a slam dunk, that's not how it works. There are no slam dunks. So that's what I want. I mean, obviously, Jack Smith, impressive pedigree. I mean, if you're prosecuting war criminals at The Hague, you clearly are somebody who is bright. But I am not really familiar with what those war criminal prosecutions entail. Do they entail spending years compiling data and information and witnesses? Are we all going to grow old before Jack Smith comes to any conclusion? Are we going to have seen another presidential race come and go before Jack Smith makes up his mind? What I want to know is what do we have here in Jack Smith? Do we have another Merrick Garland or do we have a do we have a Sally Yates? Do we have an Eric Holder? That's the real question and that's not a question that I can answer. Maybe in the coming days as people start to dig into who this Jack Smith is, we'll get a feel for that. I think it's a smart decision to name a special counsel. I'm not ragging on Merrick Garland because of that. I don't understand why he didn't do it eight months ago. I really don't. The information was there. The evidence was there. You know, maybe not everything to do with Mar-a-Lago. I mean, because obviously we now we had a lot of evidence. Now we have a tsunami of evidence against Trump. Why? I don't know. Do we do I say glass half full better late than never? I'm trying. That's the attitude I am trying to find better, better late than never. Right. Should have been taken out of Merrick Garland's hands months ago. The man is clearly not up to the task. Okay, we have a lot of other things to talk about. Oh, Carrie Lake is behaving badly. And I don't know if you, uh, you know, that Twitter almost died last night. (laughs) There's so much going on just in the last 24 hours. But I do want you to uh, talk about any news story of the recent past that interests you or that you want to make a comment on. 773-763-9278. Ooh, we got lots more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday, and every Friday we spend the first half of the show talking about the news of the week, taking your calls. Uh, let us go to the phone lines. Mark is calling in from Lake Barrington. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hey, Joan. Uh, well, I was fine until about an hour ago. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, our, our wimp AG. Um, <laughs> I I have to tell you that I think he was waiting for Trump to announce so he could do something like this. 
and have but he didn't he could have done this at any time you know he could have said months ago you know uh i don't want to make sure you know everybody understands that politics isn't a part of this therefore today i'm turning this over to a special counsel you know could have shut trump up before he ever had a chance to voice those charges this this guy was turned down or was made a fool of uh, for the Supreme Court, and this guy doesn't even have the guts to stand up to, you know, a party that's not going to cheer him for anything. Anyway, you ask the background on this guy, Smith. Okay? Mm-hmm. They mentioned something about he was involved in the Senator Stevens prosecution early in Obama's um uh, administration. I want to remind you that that was Senator St- Stevens was being uh, indicted or was being investigated for kickback for uh, extraordinary home improvements to his residents by favorable contractors in exchange for it was a public con- corruption trial. And this guy Smith dismissed the charges. Hmm. So just keep that in mind. You know, uh, <sighs> he's already dismissed charges on public corruption. Well, you just ruined my morning, Mark. Um, you know, well, I... it, it, this is your morning. Hi. <laughs> hours you keep. <laughs> yeah. OK, well, you know, I'm going to let other people get in. I'm just so aggravated right now because. I agree with you. He could have done this a year ago. He easily, and he should have done this a year, year ago because he clearly doesn't have the backbone to do it himself. And he I had... call it the backbone. He doesn't have the, uh, the temperament. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Well, that's, you know what? When he was first named head of the DOJ and people were so disappointed that he doesn't wasn't just right out of the gate going after people. I talked to a lot of federal prosecutors and they all said the same thing. They said, this is who he is. We all knew it. You know, when we heard he was being nominated, we knew this is not a guy who comes from a prosecutorial mindset. This is a guy who has spent the last many years as a judge trying to be neutral, trying to be fair and balanced. And that was how he was leading the DOJ. You know, if there had been a a Sally Yates in there, you know, I think we would have seen, oh my God, I can't even imagine what we would have seen in the way of um, charges brought. But Joe Biden was apparently afraid that Sally Yates would not survive the confirmation process because too many Republicans were mad at her for what how she had behaved under Trump. They felt that she'd embarrassed you know, Trump. Away with this. Trump is going to walk away with this. And I'm just aggravated because this is the kind of thing that the Democrats do to themselves by putting in mealy mouth, want to keep everything on the table while the other side plays an asymmetric war with them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yep. Anyway, I'm, I got to stop talking because I'm just <laughs> angry right now. Yeah, I, okay. I, I hear you. I hear you. And I understand. And 
Honestly, there's part of me. I know that Joe Biden appointed Merrick Garland and said that there was that he was not going to interfere. They were going to be independent. He wasn't going to do what Donald Trump did and turn the Department of Justice into his own private law firm. Um, and that is what President Biden has been trying to do. But 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 the problem is that if you are really going to be hands off like that, at what point do you let it be known that you would like this man who is accomplishing nothing to resign um, without looking right. like an idiot? So we'll keep it. We'll keep our eyes peeled on this one. Thanks for the call, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank um, you. Yeah, but. let's go um, back to the phone lines. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Jim. How are you today? Hi, Joe. Another freaking Friday. You All betcha. What I was going to say is uh, Louis Gomer and Jimmy Jordan are we're on the radio. I've been like a Marconi participating. I stop listening to the radio. Anyway, they're on late at night. They're going to investigate Fauci, claiming that he uh, caused the disease, he caused the COVID for financial gain. And then they're going to investigate, of course, Biden's son. And then they're going to invest Biden, and then they're going to invest. They're going to yeah. investigate every everybody on the planet. So they're yes. going to spend their time. They're going to spend their whole time doing that. I just curious how much action you get, and they'll get on television and so on and so forth. It'll it'll be have to be a juggling act, I imagine. In the in the you know uh, who's going to put what on the news and what's pertinent, what isn't pertinent. But I, what yes. I think is interesting about this. But I think this is really a, a, a kind of a counteract uh, for us uh, to put Trump on the spot. You know, if they can continue the heat on Trump, they'll turn the heat. They'll have to turn the heat up on Biden, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But we're in for a, we're in for quite a ride with uh, these uh, with uh, Louis Gomer of all people and Jimmy Jordan from your home state. I don't know where he went uh. down there. And, uh, of course, uh, Green, isn't it Green, Bobert Green, or whatever heck her name is? Lauren Bobert, Marjorie Taylor Green, oh, yeah. yeah she'll, she'll, she'll take all the oxygen out of the, out of the she room. She will do her best, won't she? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead, Joan. But no, I was just... Should be... Go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I guess a tug of war. It's going to be a tug of war. And... Uh, you know, I know it will come out and tap eventually, but it'll be a tug of war for months. You know, the, the, because they want to investigate the votes. They want to investigate the votes in the Maricopa County. I mean, they want to vote anywhere they lost or they feel a deficiency, they're going to investigate. So we're going to, we're stuck with that. Go ahead, Joe. Oh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, have a good Friday. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that, Jim. Uh, Jim is absolutely right. I mean, they have uh, the Republicans have already declared, um, I don't at least half a dozen investigations that they're going to do. And um, it it looks like they are going to put Jim Jordan, the Republican congressperson from Ohio, who is alleged by many to have turned a blind eye to sexual abuse when he was a coach. Uh, at Ohio State, uh, George Clooney is supposedly in the uh, final stages of, uh, of putting together a documentary on Jim Jordan. Can't wait for that one. It's supposed to air whenever it airs on HBO. Uh, Jim Jordan is going to be uh, apparently uh, the head of the Judiciary Committee. 
And let's see, can we name the six Hunter Biden, of course, they're going to investigate. As Jim said, they're going to look into they're going to look into covid and the vaccine development. Um, They're going to investigate Joe Biden, but I can't remember what for. Though that's three, but there were at least six investigations and it made it sound like. Exactly what Jim said, I mean, they're going to be banging pots and pans. Look at me. Look at me. Uh, look at what we're doing. Yahoo. Um, it's going to be it's going to be crazy. You know, um, on um, when we after we come back from a break on Joy Reid's show on MSNBC, her show is called The Readout. Uh, she had Kurt Bardella on. He used to be the spokesperson for the Oversight Committee. The Oversight Committee is apparently the other committee they all want to be on because that's oversight, get it? That's where all the investigations start. Um, he was talking about the Oversight Committee. He has some really interesting ideas about what Dems need to do and also some really interesting comments about Kevin McCarthy. Uh, we're going to take a break right now, and then I'm going to share that with you when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday. Every Friday we talk about the news of the day, the news of the week. There's so much that it's just in the last 24 hours. Uh, We'll be lucky if we can uh, take the time to look back. 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. Let's go to the phone lines. Roosevelt is waiting to join the conversation Hello, Roosevelt. How are you? Joan, thank you for taking my call. Have a nice weekend. Enjoy thank your birthday you. day and you know the rest. Yes. Uh, you stole a lot of my thunder. That's exactly what I was <laughs> going to talk about. I was going to talk about the hyena Jim Jordan. Yeah, I, that's what I call him, the hyena. He, to me, he looks like that cartoon character on, uh, what is it, Madagascar? One of those cartoons that my kids used to watch. <laughs> Um, he gave a laundry list. And by the way, that, oh, I cannot stand her, Joan. I cannot stand this lady. And that is the, the, um, the one on, uh, the one that used to do the, uh, the markets. And now she's on, uh, Fox. Oh, Maria Bartolomo. Oh my God. Don't even mention her name, Joan. Yep. Yep. She. Oh my God. I don't know she how she it. lost her way, but she definitely she used to be she uh, she used to be a journalist when she started off. Now she's just yeah. a right wing mouthpiece. I hate to say this, Joan, but I I've seen videos of her way back when. And she was like happy to be at these uh Remember those those things that they used to hold that, that Trump didn't go to any, any uh, not one of them where the press is there and everything you know the one where uh, uh, Obama made jokes of of Trump what is that some kind of thing the event that they have every year oh uh, the anyway. White House Correspondents Dinner that's it that's it and and oh my God this lady uh, anyway let me I'm sidetracking everything here uh, she had him on. Jim Jordan, the hyena. Uh, and, and he gave a long, long laundry list of what they're going to do as soon as they get there. Now, mind you, six months ago, they were complaining about uh, inflation, price of gas, uh, the crime. Oh, the crime. It's, it's out of control. So 
Did you see what they did? They did a complete flip. And one of the things that, that you forgot to mention, I, I know you did mention it, kind of think of it, is uh, uh, Joe Biden's son. But the main thing that came to mind when you were talking about Garland is they're going to investigate the Department of Justice, the DOJ. They're going to investigate even the FBI, Joan. They're going to investigate the FBI. They're going to get they're going to get to the bottom of why Fauci uh, uh, sent us this COVID. Because remember, they were saying that it was Fauci's fault, that it was him that he created this uh, malice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and remember Lauren Boebert? I'm not going to get my Fauci ouchie. Yeah, yeah, remember that? So, so my, but that's why I'm calling. Did you see these guys? Now, two years, like I said, I said this on your show before. Two years is going to go by fast. They pulled a fast one on all the people that voted Republican, as usual, because they use them, and then they do whatever they want to do. And these people keep on voting against their own interest. You know, that, that these people that got them, uh, uh, got them in there in, uh, in the House of, of Representatives. And, and notice how he gloats every time this guy McCarthy, you know. He can't wait to get a hold of that, uh, that little hammer, you know. So I wanted to mention those things. And, and, and it's going to be horrible for the next two years when it comes down to getting anything done. And mind mm-hmm. you, they're gonna hold they're gonna hold up the purse. They're gonna hold up the money. They're not gonna give Biden a single a single win on anything. So I hope Mitch McConnell has enough sense to um to um to go against him. And that's another thing, Joan. He's gonna go against him. Mind you, you have two leaders Republican leaders in both houses, they're, they're complete opposites. One that kisses the ring in Mar-a-Lago, such as uh, McCarthy, and the other guy that, that his wife constantly gets insulted to this day by no other than Trump and gets called names, racist, Trump. So that's what I wanted to mention. And uh, you, you know, practically, you, you said it all right before I... Uh, Right before I called. <laughs> yeah. That's what I wanted to say. And well, and I, and I agree with you. This guy, you guys didn't say this in the conversation with the last gentleman that was on. He doesn't have any cojones, Carlin. He doesn't have any cojones. Yep. Go ahead. And, I, I and usually try to say that he doesn't have any stones, but even then I feel like I'm sort of on thin ice I'm with that. But, so. mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. but he's going to be investigated, the idiot. You know, God, I, I don't, I don't know how it's gonna, I, I don't know where it's gonna go when it comes down to Garland. He's just like a thing. He reminds me of a pillow. He's, he's, he's soft, too soft. So thank you again, Joan. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's gonna be very messy, a messy situation when it comes down to, uh, to the House of Representatives. And those nuts. How is he gonna balance all the? He rem- McCarthy reminds me of the, the guy that tries to balance the seven plates in a circus. You know, yeah. how does he get a model? How does he oh. get a Yes, and I think that um, uh, with, you know, even once, even once all the votes are in, if the Republicans get every single vote, uh, every single congressional race that's still undecided, I think that the most if i if let me see if i can remember the math i think the biggest majority kevin mccarthy can possibly get is like six votes 
six or seven votes. And he is going to have he is going to have his hands full. He is going to be herding cats trying to keep those Republicans on the same page. As a matter of fact, Roosevelt, you have perfectly set up the next uh, soundbite that I wanted to share. Thank you for that. And thank you for the call. As I said, Kurt Bardella uh, joined Joy Reid. And uh, he was talking about how the Republicans are going to really they're just they're all dying to get on judiciary and oversight because they all want to do an investigation, especially the alt-right ones. And um, Kevin McCarthy, of course, by all accounts, is doing what he always does. And that's telling everybody, yes, uh, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. He's doing his Oprah. Um, <laughs> anyway. Kurt Bardella, once upon a time, was the spokesperson for the Congressional Oversight Committee. So he has seen up close and personal how this committee works. This is what he had to say when he was sitting down with Joy Reid on MSNBC. Listen to this. You've seen what it looks like when Republicans go wild on oversight. And that is going to be the committee where all the crazy is going to take place. What should Democrats do? They need to match up. You know, back in 2010, when Republicans took back Congress after that election, Democrats actually realized they were in some deep water. They knew that they needed to make a change. So they ditched the seniority system. They benched Ed Towns, who was a ranking Democrat at the time, and replaced him with a guy named Elijah Cummings. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, us at the Oversight Committee of Republicans, we, we were not happy about this. Yeah. We were, we, Cummings was a brilliant tactician, an amazing communicator, and we knew that he could get the best of us, that he could win on that dais on those hearings. Well, now here we are in a similar situation, and there's a, there's a competition right now for who's going to lead the Oversight Committee. Is it going to be Jamie Raskin? Is it going to be someone like Jerry Conley or Stephen Lynch? Democrats need to put forward the best person for the job who knows how to fight these modern Republicans, and in my opinion, Jamie Raskin is the best person we could have leading the Oversight Oversight Committee. Same thing at Judiciary Committee. And, and nothing against Jerry Nadler, who's mm-hmm. led the committee very well for a long time. But I think this is the time where we need to reset. Someone like David Cicilline, a fighter, a brawler, someone who knows that we are going to be in a street fight against the Jim Jordans, against the Comers, against the Marjorie Taylor Greens, who's angling to get on the Oversight Committee. <laughs> we know Kevin McCarthy cannot control these people. Yeah. We know, as, as Oscar Wilde once said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Well, Kevin's about to find out what that's like. <laughs> he's going to be living in hell. If he ain't drinking now, he's going to be drinking. I, I agree 100%. Kevin McCarthy is creating hell on earth for himself because he has such a slim majority to get any kind of anything past the Congress. He is going to have to try to keep the moderates happy. He's going to have to keep the alt-rights happy. And they all know that without their support, he doesn't have the votes to do anything. So what are they going to do? My prediction here is they are going to pretend that they are very busy doing all of these investigations. They're going to be telling the media how, well, you know, why why is it you haven't passed any bills? Well, you know, we've got uh, we've got to fix a lot of the corruption from the last two years. They're not going to get anything done, but they are going to declare these investigations. They are going to bang pots and pans out the window, and they are going to um, basically just try to make a lot of noise and be a thorn in Joe Biden's side.
it's uh it's going to be it's going to be a clown car congress i believe there is uh, other news of this week uh let's go to the phone lines brian is calling in from joliet hey brian how are you hi thank you joe uh, how are you and i hope you're doing well and uh I uh, thank you for taking my call. And, uh, well, I think, uh, you know, uh, given all the projections before the uh, uh, the midterms elections, uh, how it's going to be uh, supposed to be a red Republican tidal wave, I think progressives should be very uh, pleased uh, as, as a result. However, uh, progressives of all stripes cannot relax. I think it's essential that uh, Walker lose uh, in uh, Georgia because, uh, uh, as you know, uh, Man- Senators Manchin and Cinema are uh, Democrats in name only. And uh, if, uh, uh, if uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, wants to get anything done, I think we're going to really uh, need uh, for uh, Walker to lose. And, of course, also uh, with these... Uh, right-wing extremist whack jobs on the Supreme Court, uh, as you know, overturning uh, uh, Roe, and uh, uh, what's uh, next on their agenda. Uh, I think uh, I think we're getting uh, near the time uh, uh, where we might need some uh, massive peaceful marches along the lines of the civil rights marches of the 60s and anti-Vietnam War rallies and marches. Uh, uh, and uh, I think uh, because uh, uh, it has to be uh, known that the majority of the population uh, don't agree with these kinds of uh, right-wing extremist measures, and I would recommend uh, uh, people uh, check out NOW's 1967 Bill of Rights for Women. It's not that radical, and it's not anti-male. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt's Economic Bill of Rights, 1944. Well, I think you're right. I think um, <clears throat> I, I think that it's going to be. I think it's going to be tough uh, to get anything done. And you're you're absolutely right. Even though we're kind of like patting ourselves on the back, as well we should, because we kept the Senate. Uh, if we can get that seat in Georgia, and I believe it is really, really within our reach to keep Raphael Warnock in the Senate, then um, that negates, you know, even if Kirsten Cinema decides to become a Republican, that still negates uh, the Republican Party. We will still have the majority. But if we can get to 51 in the Senate, if we can get to 51 in the Senate, Chuck Schumer was explaining this, that it will make life so much easier. There are parliamentary procedures that they have to go through now because it's 50-50. If they are 51-49, so much of that kind of nonsense can be tossed aside and they can just move forward. Uh, thank you so much for that call, Brian. And, oh, before we go to break, along those lines, Raphael Warnock, <laughs> the minute Trump declared he was running for president... Raphael Warnock put out an ad because he wants to remind the people of Georgia just who Donald Trump's candidate in Georgia is. Listen to this ad. We must all work very hard for a gentleman and a great person named Herschel Walker, a fabulous human being who loves our country and will be a great 
United States Senator Herschel Walker get out and vote for Herschel, and he deserves it. He was an incredible athlete. He'll be an even better senator. Get out and vote for Herschel Walker. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message. Oh, yeah. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more of your calls and more sound from the week of the week's news stories right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are talking news of the day, politics of the week, and we are taking your calls. Let's go back to the phone lines. Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hello, Dave. Hey, Joe. Uh, before I get into what I got, there's an interesting story from about four years ago where uh, this is a company owned by House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy's in-laws won more than $7 million in no-bid and other federal contracts at U.S. military installations and other government properties in California based on a dubious claim of Native American identity by McCarthy's brother-in-law. Oh, my God. And, yeah, it's, uh, it says that uh, Vortex Construction, whose principal owner is William Wages, the brother of McCarthy's wife, Judy, received a total of $7.6 million in no-bid and other prime federal contracts since 2000, the time. And the company is co-owned by McCarthy's mother-in-law and employees, his father-in-law and sister-in-law. <laughs> McCarthy's wife was a partner in Vortex in the early 90s. And they faced no competitive bids or nothing, you know, cause, uh, his, uh, uh, because the Small Business Administration accepted wages as claim in 1998 that he's a Cherokee Indian. Under the SBA program, his company became eligible for federal contracts set aside for economically and socially disadvantaged members of the minority groups, a boon to his business. He claims he's one-eighth Cherokee, and and um, this guy, genealogist, cast doubts on that claim. However, he's a member of a group called the Northern Cherokee Nation, which has no federal or state recognition as a legitimate tribe. And oh, my goodness. By leaders. Oh, so he fits right in. He fits right in with all the other Trumpian Republicans. Go after after Hunter Biden. Now you go after his. Yeah, really. uh, um, Well, that's one of the things, you know, we get mad at Democrats for not fighting fire with fire. I mean, you know, we you know, we try to take the high road and not do a bunch of frivolous investigations. But if the Republicans really behave badly, I really hope the Democrats put their best orators out there to refute, like like uh, the guy um, Bardella was saying, get Jamie Raskin out there, get Eric Swalwell out there, get Cory Booker out there, you know, get Pete Buttigieg out there, get uh, the people, you know, who can go toe to toe with these Republicans and not back down and deal with them. Oh, OK. All right. Was there another point you wanted to make before I start ranting? Question I got on that too on MSNBC, <laughs> we see and hear from former federal prosecutors Glenn Kirshner, Barbara McQuaid, and Joyce Vance. They always seem to have the 2020 hindsight. Why, why do they not talk into their people to prosecute? You know, and mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. yeah, good questions. You know, because they they've always got the answer after the fact. I mean, they're sharp people. I'm not you know questioning that, but it's like. Why have they not ever tapped into them for some help or or worse goes the worst that they could go and uh, um, pro bono if need be or something, but uh, to work, you know, just for justice's sake. And uh, 
But yesterday, though, I was watching CNNs and their guy Ellie Honig was talking about, you know, along the lines. This was even before this guy got picked. He's saying that you know he he's frustrated. He's done cases like this. He said it's never taken this long, and he says you know it's going to take up to a year to a year and a half now to possibly seat somebody for a grand jury on this guy. You know, and by that time, we're into the election season, you know? Well, that's what I was worried about with, you know, this um, this Jack, Jack Scott is in his name. Um, you know, that's great. He's got this great yeah. resume. He prosecutes war criminals at The Hague. Okay, well, how long is it going to take him to get up to speed with all of the material on Trump, we know maybe he maybe Merrick Garland is going to give him a staff of 20 lawyers and maybe he's going to get up to speed in a matter of weeks. But I wouldn't hold my breath. No, you and me both. You and me both. Yep. On that. But I just thought I'd enlighten you with that story about I remember seeing that a while back about uh, old uh, Kevin McCarthy. So maybe it's time our Justice Department starts digging back into the records there. And, yeah, you know, like you say, fight fire with fire. You want to go after him for that was issued as a, a non-starter at one time. Then we go after his family, you know. So. Yep. Um, at hey. some point, we have to fight fire with fire. I really do believe yeah. that. And I, I'm not saying that we attack um, family members in crazy ways like they're planning to do with Hunter Biden. But, you know. They have to know there are consequences for this kind of craziness. There, If there have to be consequences, whenever the Democrats so much as sneeze, the Republicans are all over it. You know, just like, for instance, Rachel Maddow was saying, why was everybody predicting a red wave? Well, the polling was off, but also we kept hearing all these Republicans in leadership tell us there was going to be a red wave. And then Mitch McConnell, after the fact, says, I never said there was going to be a red wave. None of our polling ever supported that idea. So, you know, we get sucked into their bluff and bluster all the time. Hey, Joan, and on the other side, where is it written that our people can't obfuscate and stall and and, uh, and start suing them? Mm-hmm. You know, play them at their own game. I don't think they changed the law on that. Since we've been doing it, you know, it's like we're like you say, we're just oh, okay if you say so. We'll do it. Nobody's even putting up as much as a fight, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So. Anyway, <sighs> sorry to bring you down for the week. That's a good one. <laughs> That's okay. You can't keep me down. Thanks, Dave. Good. Thanks for the call. Be well. You too. Uh, let's go. Let's get one more phone call in before we break for news. Eduardo is calling in from the southwest side. Hello, Eduardo. Thanks for calling. What did you want to talk about today? Yeah, Joan, I thought I'd give you the call here. I end my vacation week here. But uh, what did you think about the real estate tax thing? You know, the the amounts came out this week, you know, for the second installment. And there was a heavier burden on the um, homeowners as opposed to the uh, commercials. And their reason was that, well, because of uh, COVID. What did you hmm. think about that inversion? I have not gotten my bill yet. I still, um, I still uh, am reeling from the first bill, but uh, so I haven't. I haven't seen the second bill yet. So I have not done a deep dive into into what's there. Um, I yeah. think that. Um, 
I think that property taxes, in my experience, no matter how much money a government body, taxing body takes in, no matter how big their rainy day fund or their reserves, the one thing we can count on, Eduardo, is that our property taxes never go down. Never. Never. I swear the federal yeah, government could that. give the state of Illinois um, a billion dollars and they'd say, well, yeah, but we can't lower your property taxes. We need that money. I mean, it's just, I'd, I'd, it's something I try to just hold my nose. I write the check. I cry a little bit and then I move on. Yeah. Well, I uh, listen around and somebody was saying, well, People would be more alarmed if the uh, escrow was uh, more under scrutiny, but mm-hmm. that's, yep. that's what they say. But Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure I will have lots to say once that second bill rolls in. And if I if yeah. that is if I can if I can speak through my tears, Eduardo, I don't know. Yeah. Well, David Hopper ripped into He was on and uh, he ripped into them. So the next time you have him, he can go into detail. But he didn't have any good words to say about, you know, the people in the county dealing with this. So next time yeah, you have well, him on, you can talk about that. Tony Preckwinkle um, uh, said they they installed a new computer system. And I don't know what went wrong, but it didn't get up and running in the way it was supposed to, as quickly it was supposed to, which is why yeah. we were in the position of getting one property tax bill and yeah. then two months another. Yeah. Um, and I know yeah. David was just furious with them. And, it, you know, we, we can all be furious with them, but that's not exactly something that we can retroactively change. So I think. It's just something that we're going to have to hope doesn't happen again. And if it does, yeah. then I say we vote all of them, all of them out of office. <laughs> yeah. Term limits. There you go. There's the attitude, Joan. There you go. Everyone. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Yeah. Have we a are going to stay warm. Yeah. Thanks, Eduardo. We are going to take more calls. We are going to take a break for news right now. And oh, my, we have so much more to get to right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It's Friday. We spend the first half of the show on Friday talking about the news of the day, the news of the week, taking your calls. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Ron. Thanks for the call. Yes, uh... The uh, Republicans, they are going to uh, investigate uh, Hillary Clinton and Benghazi again. They are going to uh, investigate the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. And there was a Republican like yesterday who said that uh, President Biden, he had 12 shill corporations where he made millions of dollars. But uh, but the Supreme Court is supposed to, to decide uh, soon about... Uh, Trump's uh, tax returns, whether they will be made public, and uh, if they are, maybe uh, he will be uh, indicted quickly on uh, tax evasion and tax fraud. Well, um, I suppose that's possible. I don't have much faith in um, in this Supreme Court, though they certainly haven't always backed Trump a hundred percent. They were the ones who said know that uh, the January 6th committee could indeed have access to material in the National Archives, and that certainly wasn't what Trump wanted. But um, 
I don't know. Uh, first of all, it's, you know, it's Congress that wants those tax returns. And I don't know how public they're going to become. And I've always had the sense that he doesn't want his tax returns released, not because he thinks that somehow it will prove that he's done something criminal. I think he doesn't want his tax returns released because something in them is going to embarrass him. Either he doesn't have as much money as he's always tried to tell people he has or something else. I, I get this. I've always had the sense that his reluctance to release his tax returns was less about criminality and more about humiliation in some respect. I don't know. You didn't get that. You haven't gotten that sense, obviously. Um, yeah, maybe he got donations from, uh, you know, people uh, from uh, certain uh, people like uh, from Russia or the uh, radical groups. That can be embarrassing. Yeah, it's something in there he doesn't want us to know about, but I don't think it's like, you know, he's, I don't think he's fighting this. My sense is that he's not fighting it, um, because he, um, thinks that it's going to mean he ends up in jail, but rather that there's something in those tax returns he doesn't want people to know. But maybe you hit on it. Maybe it's not something embarrassing so much as he doesn't want people to know just exactly how involved he is with other governments. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it, Ron. Um, Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Steve. Thanks for calling today and joining the conversation. Yes, thank you for taking my call. And, and I think you know, we're between a rock and a hard place with regard to the Trump investigation because his declaring his candidacy uh, has produced exactly the conundrum that we're talking about because he hopes that somehow running for office is going to defer a prosecution because no one at the Justice Department wants to look like they're going after the, the presumptive you know, uh, nominee. Republican nominee, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he, it's not as if this is going to end with him not getting the nomination. I have to assume he gets it and then loses. I mean, it's only deferring it. Uh, so, But in his mind, you know, it's worth that to, to keep him perhaps out of jail another year or two, if that's the case. But, yes, uh, I mean, he, he's not running because he thinks he'd, he'd be great for his party or he'd be great <laughs> for his country. He's running as the narcissist that he is, you know, the self-interested, you know, deranged person that he is. So, yes, it's produced exactly the outcome that we all knew it would. Um, having said that, I think that uh, there comes a point uh, after the after the new year when we're in 2023. Okay, since 2015, we've been promised all sorts of plans. You know, we were we were promised a national health care plan for uh, as a platform of, on, in terms of the Trump candidacy back in 2016, 2015. Sure, there's I'm sure he's got a great health plan. And how many times did we hear that he was going to announce it in two weeks? Two weeks. It's coming in two weeks. It got to be like a joke that people on late night TV made fun of. Two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. And he had no shame saying it the whole two years. He was two weeks, two weeks. Yeah, it'll be eight years in two weeks after (laughs) Christmas. So, yes, I mean, you know, at some point you've got to you you can't just, you know, spew hate people in America, especially after after 2022 in the midterms have demonstrated that they want substance. It's not enough to simply hate and to despise the person on the other side of the aisle. You've got to lay out a plan for Americans. What do, what do you intend to do? What does your party intend to do for this country moving forward, economically, politically, socially, economically, all of these things? 
And if you can't articulate that, then, you know, just being the party that's opposed to everything that the other party wants to do is not a platform. No. Yeah. And and as we've discussed before, uh, Republicans are are a dying breed and that younger people uh, are nowhere near as conservative as the elder statesmen in that party that define their ideology. And it's and it's the extreme. It's an extremist element within their party among old people. And somehow they're confused as to why, you know, Gen Z's and millennials didn't vote for them. You know, mm-hmm. these are not people who grew up. But, you know, if you're under 40, the idea of gay marriage or or kids identifying in some one shape or form or another is uh, in, in terms of their gender. I mean, it's, it's nothing new to you. It's not shocking. It may be shocking to your grandparents, but it's not shocking to you. And, you know, the idea that we're going to turn back the clock on things like gay marriage is unheard of to these kids. They yes. have friends. Who they, are, they've they grown up with this. It wasn't a question of should yeah. we or shouldn't we. It's, a, it's the, their attitude is, well, of course, of course there's gay people. And, of course, they should be able to get married just like anybody else. And, you know, they look at, you know, they they've this has been a part of the fabric of their lives. Exactly what you're saying, which is the same reason why I think the Dobbs decision motivated a lot of them to vote, because they've never known a world in which they didn't have abortion rights until now. And, and lastly, uh, this is the pragmatic side of my brain uh, talking here. <laughs> As much as I as much as I despise Donald Trump, I would rather run against Donald Trump, uh, given all of his baggage, than a Ron DeSantis, you know, than any number of other candidates uh, on the Republican side, because therein I think they stand a chance of winning, whereas Donald Trump doesn't. There's nothing about the last couple of years that have rehabilitated Donald Trump's image. No, 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 no. He's lost standing in his own party. I don't know where he's going to get the funding as far as, uh, you know, the, the money is going to come from for his candidacy. Uh, many people have expressed a disdain for his de- desire to run again within his own party. So yeah, I, I think he'd be the perfect nominee if we could get him nominated because he's the perfect guy to run against us to lose. Yeah, so I exactly. Trump, but, he is, but he'd be better at, for us than a Ron DeSantis. And it has been pointed out on a lot of the cable news talk shows that Donald Trump is the kind of guy that let's say at the last minute Ron DeSantis throws his hat in the ring and by some miracle Ron DeSantis gets the nomination. Donald Trump is going to make destroying Ron DeSantis his mission in life. Oh, absolutely. If he loses the nomination, let's say that we have uh, primaries and, and a caucus and so if your caucus is going forward and then and it's, it's relatively close and then at some point where Donald Trump loses, he will accuse his own party of having cheated him out of that nomination and, and will refuse to concede, will refuse to campaign on, on behalf of his party's nominee. I mean, this is because he's a petulant, petty individual. Right, and, and he'll do what he's done before. He'll tell people not to vote, and his followers yeah, won't vote. Yeah, they, yep. they don't need to vote Democratic, but just staying at home, as, as, what, they, as what happened in Georgia in 2021 in the runoff, just enough Trump people stayed at home and said, I'm not going to participate because they bought into the notion of a stolen election that it, it swung the election for us. So, like I said, I hate Donald Trump, but he's a good thing for us as far as uh, <laughs> a candidate going forward. You know, I agree. I agree. I think that I think that a lot of Democrats feel the same way. Obviously, Raphael Warnock does. I mean, you heard that ad I played where, I mean, he is 
He is stitching Herschel Walker and Donald Trump together. And also, I don't know if you saw this, Steve. I saw something, and I meant to say it on the air, and I think I forgot, a week or two ago, where Donald Trump's people supposedly have communicated with the Republican committee in Georgia that they pretty much have to choose. Either he comes to Georgia to campaign for Herschel Walker, or if they have Ron DeSantis come, they will not get any appearances by Donald Trump or any support from Donald Trump. He's His people have communicated that to the Republicans in Georgia, that it's they're not going to have their cake and eat it, too. They're going to have to make a choice. It'll be interesting to see Absolutely. what choice they make. And, and one last sort of self-serving point. If anybody out there is prepared to fry an additional turkey, I will pay you. I'm looking for somebody to fry a turkey because I can't go back to eating old old turkey. I, I have to have fried turkey, but I need to find somebody who's willing to do it. So if you can call in, please let me know where I can get in touch with you. Um, one of the food bloggers I follow uh, posted a video compilation of all the people who have set their homes on fire trying to trying to yeah, fry exactly. turkeys. Not, yeah, I mean I'm downtown, so I'm not about to do it myself. But I need to find somebody. I'll drive. I'll pick up the bird. If you're making one for your family and you let me pay you a hundred bucks while I'm finding a turkey, I'll do it. So. All right, you've heard it, everybody. Steve from the Gold Coast, looking for fried turkey. If uh, if you can accommodate him, uh, get in touch with us. Steve, happy have a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, we are going to take a break. Want to talk a little bit more about Nancy Pelosi, the other big story of the week, when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Every Friday, we look back on the news of the week, and the big story of this week was Nancy Pelosi uh, keeping everybody in suspense till the last minute, appearing before Congress, giving a speech, and announcing that while she planned to stay in her congressional seat representing San Francisco, she was not going to seek any kind of leadership post going forward. It was uh, big news. She also... Uh, talked a little bit about her husband and what his support has meant to her. I want to share with you once again the sound of her making that announcement. Listen to this. Now we must move boldly into the future, grounded by the principles that have propelled us this far and open to fresh possibilities for the future. Scripture teaches us that for everything there is a season a time for every purpose under heaven. My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Madam Speaker, standing here today, I'm endlessly grateful for all of life's blessings. 
for my Democratic colleagues whose courage and commitment with the support of your families have made many of these accomplishments possible. In fact, could not have been done without you. For my dear husband, Paul, who has been my beloved partner in life and my pillar of support, thank you. We're all grateful for all the prayers and well wishes as he continues his recovery. Thank you so much. That was the longest ovation of the day, the longest ovation she got, and one of the ovations, because not everyone was bipartisan, but that one was. Um, The Republicans and the Democrats took to their feet, clapped their hands, turned to acknowledge her family, who was up in the corner of um, of the seating area surrounding her and um, they were at least gracious enough to do that they um, it didn't start off that way I mean there were times early in her speech where it was one of those deals and I thought oh my god is this going to be the whole thing where when she said something important that the Democrats applauded and Republicans just sat there uh, staring at her, uh, staring off into space. And I thought, oh, God, can we not? This woman is walking away after an incredible career that any of you would kill to have. Can we not at least acknowledge that? Apparently, um, Mitch McConnell said some very nice, very kind things about Nancy Pelosi. And, you know, those two did not see eye to eye. As a matter of fact, uh, this morning on MSNBC, um, Micah Brzezinski went off on the Republicans and how they behaved as Nancy Pelosi was making her farewell speech. Listen to this. Minority Whip Steve Scalise was the only member of the House GOP leadership to attend Pelosi's speech, and he showed up late. Compare that to the Senate side, where Minority Leader Mitch McConnell put out a gracious statement offering his congratulations. He wrote in part this, The Speaker and I have disagreed frequently and forcefully over the years, but I have seen firsthand the depth and intensity of her commitment to public service. There is no question that the impact of Speaker Pelosi's consequential and path-breaking career will long endure. That is what, well, that's a kind, old school, elegant, 
And now school. old school. Yeah. It's the way our politics used to be. You know, if, if the big retirement like this, yeah. uh, the end of an era, first woman to serve as speaker, an amazing it, career, it a mother of five. Right. And by the way, her husband was just attacked yeah. as the result of political violence. This would have been the moment to step up and show so, some grace. Who raised you? Who raised these people? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Who raised you? Who raised you, Kevin McCarthy? Who raised you, Republicans in the House? Seriously, try and imitate somebody with just an ounce of grace. Try and make your mother proud for one second. It's disgusting. It's disappointing. And not to me. You're the one who has to look in the mirror every day. Anyhow, I digress. (laughs) But it's a good digression. Jonathan Last, who's a conservative columnist, he was a Republican until Trump, but he writes a great newsletter every afternoon. And he said Democrats and Republicans differ in their value judgments about the merits of the policies Pelosi helped enact. But if the question is, was Nancy Pelosi an effective leader? And do you wish your party had someone like her? Well, he said there's no difference of opinion on that. And then he quotes a couple of political reporters. Robert Draper uh, tweeted out, I can confirm that this sentiment is held by nearly every Republican House member I've interviewed across the entire spectrum. And what is that sentiment? That was put on uh, social media by Kirsten Powers. Nancy Pelosi will go down as one of the most powerful and effective speakers of the House in history. No matter how much the GOP vilifies her to rile up their base, the truth is they wish they had a leader like her. And Jonathan Last goes on to say, and besides all that, Pelosi might be the single most self-aware politician of her era. In 2017, when some Democrats tried to unseat her, she explained, I'm worth the trouble. Every one of us should want that as our epitaph. She was definitely worth the trouble. And um, on nearly two decades of leadership in Congress, just an extraordinary record, an, inc- an incredible woman at getting the votes and thinking strategically, not just of what's happening today or tomorrow, but what is going to happen next week and the week after that and in the months that follow. Supposedly, she is uh, behind Hakeem Jeffries rising to Democratic leadership. She has, by all accounts, mentored Hakeem Jeffries and um, says that part of the reason she wants to stay in Congress is she wants to be there to support him going forward. Good choice. We are going to continue now. Um, coming up. We're going to talk to two people who we have in the past talked to separately, Lee Bay and Blair Kamen. Blair has written a book called Who is the City For? Lee, who uh, currently is one of the uh, on the editorial board for the Sun-Times, is also uh, an award-winning, incredible photographer. He did uh, most of the photos for the book. Who is the City For? Questions that we have to think about when we do these developments like Lincoln Yards or the 78. Who's the city for? We're going to talk to Blair Kamen and Lee Bay right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am so pleased to welcome back to our program former Chicago Tribune architecture critic Blair Kamen. 
He has written a book. It is a collection of uh, some of his columns with updated material, and it is called Who is the City For? Blair, how are you? Hi, Joan. It's great to uh, to talk to you again. It's nice to have you back again. I'm glad that you've been staying busy. This is a wonderful book. Um, you haven't exactly been just laying around eating bonbons. That's good to know. No, um, not at all. Hey, I've been give me a little credit. I've been doing triathlons and five Ks as well as working on this book. So no bonbons for me. Try, seriously, are you are you serious? I am serious. Yeah, yeah. I wow. Really am. Yeah, it's wonderful. I um, I ad, I admire and I feel a little bit of horror for people who do triathlons. <laughs> Um, I will try to focus on the admire part and not not the horror part. My idea of a triathlon is having to go upstairs to the laundry room more than once a day. I'm telling you, I'm out of breath. My hands are on my knees. I'm like, does no one appreciate how hard I work? Huh. Oh, that's funny. No, it's um, been great. It's been great to experience Chicago's lakefront, especially. Wow. As a participant, you know, swimming in uh, in the lake and biking along Lakeshore Drive uh, and running through the museum campus in a triathlon. Just an incredible experience. Well, you know, you may see Heidi Stevens out there. I, I saw where she's uh, uh, she posted on social media that she's decided that she's going to train to run a marathon. I don't know if it's the New York Marathon or the Chicago Marathon uh, next year, but, you know, God love it to both of you. You can both get out there and do all this stuff, and I will be watching from my window. I will wave as you run by. That's great. All right. Just let me know what apartment you're in, and I'll wait. Okay. Um, you know, I, as I read this book, I was, I, what I do when I'm going to interview an author is I put post-notes where there are things that I want to talk about, and I realized that I had way too many post-notes, probably, for this discussion. So I decided to summarize my post-notes ideas into themes and topics that you address in this book. And the first one is something that comes up from time to time here on my radio show, and that's gentrification. Mm -hmm. I don't see, Blair, how you get around it. When you make an, whether it's because you built the 606 or some beautiful Mm -hmm. architecture or put up some Mm -hmm. statues, when you make an area more pleasant, more people are going to want to live there. Um, Mm -hmm. So the people selling properties are going to get higher and higher bids. I don't see any way around that. What do you think about that idea? Is it necessarily always bad? um, You are exactly right that gentrification uh, preventing gentrification while redeveloping um, disadvantaged areas is a key challenge of, of our time. And actually, I was just on the phone today with Maurice Cox, Lori Lightfoot's planning commissioner, and he was talking about how the city's trying to do that in its Invest Southwest program, which is Lightfoot's signature initiative on the south and west sides. Well, I just want to point out, real interrupt real quickly, Maurice Cox was point number four of our discussion, so we can blend gentrification and Maurice Cox into one discussion right now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically, the the advantage, one way that you can prevent gentrification on the south and west sides is develop new housing in all the vacant land that's there, right? I mean, what is the primary factor that affects the price of a house? How much the land costs, right? Well, mm-hmm. land values for neighborhoods on the south and west sides are very low. 
And that gives developers the opportunity to um, to build affordable housing in those neighborhoods along with the redeveloped business areas, um, you know, the business districts in neighborhoods like Auburn Gresham, uh, where I was on Wednesday and saw a beautiful new um, or renovated Gothic Revival commercial building that now has a health clinic in it. So if you combine redevelopment of those business districts with um, improved streetscapes with wider sidewalks, bike lanes, and other things, um, you have a chance to make neighborhoods attractive and you have a chance to avoid gentrification because there's a lot of available land there. And that is actually an advantage rather than the perceived disadvantage that it is right now. Well, I've seen some of the new affordable housing buildings that have been built, and they certainly are a far cry from the architecture of the old, like, Cabrini-Green high-rises. Most of what I've seen are kind of low and mid-rise, and they're attractive buildings. But, you know, what about when you don't have vacant land? Like, along the 606, I know that um, a lot of people were worried that, especially around Humboldt Park, that a lot of the uh, people who rent, you know, sort of low-income apartments were going to be driven out. But a lot of those buildings, frankly, are kind of old and ugly, and they're not in particularly good repair. Do we leave them as is so that they can continue to have affordable rents, or do we make them pretty? Well, I think you renovate them, uh, and you do it. Here's the key. When you build something like the 606, a major public works project, you have to recognize that it's going to change the real estate dynamics of a densely crowded neighborhood that's different from the vacant parcels, all the vacant parcels on the south and west sides. So you have to think ahead of the game. And in other words, you're not playing two-dimensional checkers. You're playing three-dimensional chess. And so increasingly what cities are doing when they're building linear parks like the 606, they're saying, look, we know that this is likely to lead to gentrification and upward pressures on rents. So we have to put plans in place to create affordable housing along with this development, not after the fact, but as part of the development itself. That way you don't get the incredibly ironic scene of residents who lived around the 606 marching on the 606 mm-hmm. to protest the gentrification that that development that that, that public amenity caused in their neighborhood i uh, moved into bucktown when it was before it was cool or when it was maybe just on the brink of being cool and i remember there was a um one of the police officers that would patrol the neighborhood you know he'd stop and we'd chat And he lived two blocks over from me. And I remember, you know, like a year later running into him and he he stopped and we chatted. And I was like, oh, you know, I can't believe I haven't been over to your block in a while. And he said, oh, I don't live there anymore. I couldn't afford it. I had to move. And I was just stunned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this you're that's real. And, you know, one of the big issues now is as the city looks at say redeveloping LaSalle Street downtown, you know, you've got all these wonderful historic nineteen twenties office towers there, but a lot of them are pretty vacant because newer ones have lured away tenants. So you know one issue there is as those get redeveloped, perhaps with city subsidies, should the city insist upon having some affordable housing 
in those um, redeveloped office buildings. Uh, and with the thinking that the cop who works downtown or mm-hmm. the restaurant worker or other people might actually be able to afford to live there. And that's a good thing for everybody because that way that person doesn't have to drive, spew air pollution into the yep. into our air. And so, you know, there's there are benefits to that. I mean, the, the, one of the key themes in the book, if I could just blab on for a little bit here. Blab is, away. It is equity. And we think of equity as um, fair treatment for neighborhoods that have historically gotten the short end of the stick, like neighborhoods on the south and west sides. But I try to look at equity through a, a broader lens and try to reframe our understanding of it. I think we need to combine the financial meaning of the word equity, as in equities, shares of stock, to consider the spaces in between our buildings, the public realm, as the environment that we all share and that we all have a stake in. And this is relevant in contemporary debate because think of the proposed extension of the red line south of 95th Street. That would be funded in part by TIF funds from downtown and the near south side. There are some aldermen from those wards saying, oh, don't take the money and give it to those you know, to the far south side, the CTA is a mess right now with ghost trains and blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is that the TIF financing mechanism was used for the red and purple modernization on the north side, and substantial benefits would accrue to the city as a whole because of the, 90, of the extension of the red line. What would they be? Well, you'd have new developments clustering, new housing clustering and around the stations down there. That increases the tax base. You have uh, you cut people's commute time by mm-hmm. half an hour. That improves the labor pool for the CEO who is facing a labor shortage for his company in Willis Tower. You have fewer people commuting um, by car, which improves air quality. So you can just go on and on and on. But the point is that um, it's a win-win. It isn't just those people down there on the far south side are going to get the benefits of this. Everybody benefits from a, mm-hmm. a, a infrastructure improvement like that. This is this is uh, tangential, but you brought up office buildings, and I've been reading. I, I I like to read about how a lot of office buildings are being repurposed because you know they believe that you know people are never going to go back to the office in yeah. the same kind of numbers where they were before. And I'm reading about things that are uh, redone to be residential apartments and uh-huh. food courts. And what do you think about that idea? And what do you th- what do you think is the best way to repurpose those buildings? Or does it depend on the building? Turning them into residential is often an ideal solution. These buildings from the 1920s and 1930s often have relatively narrow floor plates, you know, just the floor area. So that's good because it puts um, you, the condo owner, near windows where you get good views. And... We, you know, we often have to come up with solutions for recycling great buildings. And hey, one of these uh, that I'm talking about specifically is the Chicago Tribune Tower, where I worked for you know, almost <laughs> 30. Um, a great office building, uh, neo-gothic, spectacular building on at the at the head of the of the Mag Mile, right across from the Wrigley Building. Um, 
it's been redeveloped as condos. Am I a little bit weirded out by the fact that like millionaires are now living in a, an office building where, you know, beaten <laughs> down ink, ink stained wretches like me once worked <laughs> and, and, and cockroaches thrived? Yes, I am a little weirded out by that. But I'm very happy that Tribune Tower has survived, has found a new use. And, you know, that's the model for buildings on LaSalle Street. The only change being that in the case of those LaSalle Street buildings, it's hoped that there will be some affordable housing in them, too. Yeah, LaSalle Street is a perfect example of, uh, of you know, how there's the space there that we can do anything with, which is what uh, we need to take a break, but which is why I want to go back to Maurice Cox. I don't I try to pay attention to what's going on in the city. And I'm ashamed to say that I did not know about Maurice Cox until I read your book. So I want to talk to you more about who he is, what he is doing and what he hopes to do with the city of Chicago. Blair Kamen's new book is Who is the City for Architecture, Equity and the Public and the Public Realm in Chicago. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with former Chicago Tribune architecture critic Blair Kamen, who collected some of his more recent columns and updated them and has put together a book called Who is the City for Architecture, Equity, and the Public Realm in Chicago? Through this book, I learned about someone by the name of Maurice Cox, who I'm embarrassed that I didn't know of before. Talk to me about this man. He came to us from Detroit. Uh, tell us who he is and what he wants to accomplish. Okay. So um, Maurice is one of Laurie Lightfoot's best hires. Um, he grew up in Brooklyn. He once was the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia. He later served as director of design for the National Endowment for the Arts. And he also was an associate dean for community engagement at Tulane University School of Architecture. And most important, he was the director of planning in Detroit and oversaw a revival of that city's downtown, as well as plans to revive its struggling uh, neighborhoods, uh, of which there are many. So Maurice um, is helming um, the city's Invest Southwest initiative, and that uh, uh, program seeks to redevelop um, 10 communities on the south and west sides, among them Englewood, Auburn, Gresham, Austin. Um, It has attracted 2.2 billion dollars in private and public investment, Joan. And that's for neighborhoods that were written off as wastelands by much of the real estate market. So that in itself is a significant achievement. Now, what Cox has done in contrast to the Cabrini Greens and Robert Taylors of the world, these slash and burn mega public housing developments, is he has come up with plans with the assistance of great architects and urban designers that, as you noted correctly, respect the scale of existing neighborhoods, incorporate historic buildings like the Laramie State Bank building at Laramie in Chicago and Austin, and that um, mixed uses like put together housing with retail shops. And in other words, these developments are going to try to fit snugly into their neighborhoods 
and upgrade them with new modern designs um, that um, mix uses as, as good neighborhoods tend to do. Here's the tricky part. None of this can happen overnight, okay? Um, Whitefoot has held groundbreakings for some of these, but construction has not started yet. I talked to cops today, and he said that construction on some of them will begin soon. But there are bureaucratic approval hurdles to overcome and other factors that are, you know, that have slowed the projects down somewhat. You know what? In the long run, a delay of a few months isn't a big deal. Remember, Millennium Park opened four years late. And now, does anybody care that it was four years late? No. I didn't even remember till you said that, that it was four years late. Exactly. Four years late. I mean, the press had a field day documenting all the delays, all the overruns, but everybody's pretty much forgotten that now because the park is such a spectacular success. So what Maurice is doing is really important. Um, Think of the city as an ocean liner, okay? Mm -hmm. If the ocean liner is going in the right direction, if the SS Chicago is directed toward redeveloping uh, areas that had long been overlooked and just thrown a crumb of bread here and there, but never gotten systematic improvement, then that's a big change. That did not happen under Ron Emanuel or Rich Daly or Richard J. right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's why um, what Maurice is doing is very significant. Now, I say in the book that whoever the next mayor of Chicago is, the Invest Southwest program must continue. Um, it has to be seen through, not just for another term, but for like a generation, because it took uh, multiple generations to create the mess that we have on um, the South and West sides through redlining, through disinvestment, through deindustrialization. Um, all these things that have come together to, to make life there miserable in many cases uh, and to lead the population to decline precipitously. So anybody who thinks that, you know, snap your finger and these things are going to be solved overnight is, is fooling themselves. Um, but well, it's good to hear problem? you say that because, you know, we yeah. do have a, a mayoral campaign coming up pretty uh pretty shortly and you know i've started reading well you know she talked about south by southwest but what's really happened and there's not a lot you know what can you point to and where are the buildings and you know it's it's easy to think that uh maybe if just a little more time money or effort or focus had been put into it that you know it would be farther along now but you really do have to be patient i'm not good at patient blair no, neither am I. And in other words, if I'm, you know, John Q. Public sitting at home uh, watching TV about the daily drumbeat of, you know, violence and carjackings and smashing grabs, I'm thinking, hey, the city's out of control. What the hell is changing? Um, but quietly, these plans are being put in place and they will start to make changes. But so life has a very tough case to make because there have been minor improvements as part of the Invest Southwest program that hint at what it's going to accomplish. But it's hard to run if people can't see and touch and feel the changes that you've made. I mean, that was in a strange way, you know, that was one of the things that Rich Daly was good at 
like with those median planners that went in, you know, in the middle of Michigan Avenue, people could see those. They could see the tulips popping up, you know, and mm-hmm. and they could say, well, this isn't an urban jungle. This is a place that's civilized and is beautiful. And, you know, that that helped uh, that sort of short term razzle dazzle helped uh, Mayor Daley uh, and, and helped him go on in his later terms to do big things like Millennium Park or the museum campus. Um, so, you know, that's the challenge for Lori Lightfoot. She's, she's done many things to get the ship of state headed in the right direction. The question is whether voters will recognize those things and give her another four years to, you know, see some of those seeds blossom and uh, come to fruition. Well, maybe it would help if they gave, you know, if, if they gave it a periodically some publicity. Oh, you know, like, we just want to remind you, this is what we have planned. Look, this is what it's going to look like. Isn't going to be great. This is what it's going to do. Because, you know, I mean, um, a lot of the people who are going to be reporting on this, we have right. we have short attention spans, I'm ashamed to say, in many, in many respects. It's absolutely true. I mean, look, they, you know, she's had groundbreakings. And they, you know, send out press releases and do any number of things to, you know, publicize this stuff. But again, it's it's still, you know, it's one thing to hear about what's going to happen. It's another thing to actually see it in the flash. And, you know, like same thing happened with Millennium Park. You know, like people, what is this crazy thing? What's this, you know, bean thing? Come on, what's, what, what kind of crazy idea is that? Well, obviously, you know, we know how that one turned out. Um, the new icon of the city of Chicago. So um, they are trying to publicize it. Um, in some cases, you have a, you know, a, a media that's uh, downsized and doesn't have the resources to cover these issues as well as it did before. Um, and, you know, that's a problem for them, too. But um, all I can say is, is that, you know, things are being done. The question is whether they'll be seen through. Uh, and that's important because they really are um, very progressive um, policies that address the issue of equity in significant ways. You mentioned the controversy um, about putting a very big name on a reasonably otherwise attractive building. Um, mm-hmm. How uh, is there any way for us to retroactively get that sucker down? Do we have to get somebody to come in and buy that building or lease the entire building? How do we get that Trump name off of that building? Uh, um, uh, a new owner <laughs> would be a good. Uh, it would definitely be a good. I, I think if Joan Esposito bought that building. Uh, with the vast well, I haven't. Wa- I've been playing the billion dollar lotteries so far. My number has not come up. <laughs> OK. All right. Well, when you or another new owner gets it, I am sure that the name T.R.U.M.P. Uh, will be removed. Why? Because it is a huge financial liability. When Trump uh, told me about the sign. He said, oh, it'll be like the Hollywood sign. Everyone's going to love it. Well, not quite. I mean, when he was in office, everyone was giving the sign the finger. They were holding. Oh, yeah. They were using, they were using the sign as a backdrop for protests against. It's a photo op. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, the, the sign is, um, you know, it's bad business. 
um, because nobody wants to be saying, oh, I live in the Trump building. Nobody except, I guess, someone who watches, you know, uh, Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram. So anyway, um, the point is that, um, I mean, one alderman, I think, uh, proposed an ordinance which said that um, you couldn't have major signs on buildings if you were a convicted felon and there was a chance, you know, or were impeached. And so, you know, there was <sighs> when during the impeachment proceedings, when, you know, that, that chicken was going to come or that, you know, was going to come home to roost, but of course it didn't happen. So I don't know, you know, I think as long as the Trump family owns that building, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Ivanka or Don or Eric, you know, they're going to keep the name there. It's, it's ridiculous because I mean, Daly's administration, um, you know, agreed to it. Then Rom had to like try to downsize it a little. He, you know, he couldn't get rid of it though because it had been approved. And you know, of course, that led to the whole controversy. And you know, Trump calling me a third-rate architectural critic on the Today Show when I said the sign was ugly, and you know, saying he thought I got fired from my job when in fact I was on a fellowship at a. East Coast University. And yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I got the Today Show to run a correction on the air. So it it all worked out. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) God, what a mess. Uh, Blair, we have to we have to wrap this up. I would like to have you back sometime. One of the things that I think is a really complex, thorny issue that there are some possible solutions or pilot programs being tried is the issue of how to house those who are unhoused. I know that was a big uh, platform for Karen Bass getting elected mayor of L.A., is that she had a plan to provide housing for thousands of people. Uh, it is a problem that every city has, and it is a problem that some places are trying to tackle. But I'd, I really would like to sit and talk with you about you know what you see out there and what kinds of solutions you think architecturally, what kind of buildings need to be built, or if indeed any do. Uh, so that I would like to have you come back once you're finished uh, doing uh, all of your uh, triathlons and promoting the book. I'd like to come have you come back, and we'll do a dis- deep discussion on that issue, if you would. That'd be my pleasure. Thank you for um, for asking, and thanks very much, Joan, for having me on. It's really Always a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you just for devoting attention to the issues that this book raises. Um, who is the city for is a is a big question now, and it should be a big question as the city goes forward and thinks about electing its next mayor. Yep. Blair Kamen, who is the city for? Thank you for being here, my friend. Um, thank you again for the time. We have to take a break for news. We are going to be back right after the news with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Well, as we get ready for the Thanksgiving holiday, um, candidate for mayor Willie Wilson has announced another gas and grocery giveaway. Um, Steve Lessman from the station just gave me a heads up. Apparently, this has just been posted um, you need if you want to find the locations you have to go to dr willie wilson's facebook page facebook.com slash dr willie wilson and because uh, apparently some of the locations have changed it starts tomorrow at 7 a.m again this is a gas 
uh, $50 in gas cards or $50 in gas and $25 grocery cards are going to be given away at um, locations. Uh, there's actually one location in Indiana. Uh, the rest of them look like the uh, they are in um, in the Chicago area, Jeffrey Boulevard, King Drive, 63rd, Roosevelt. Um, and the and the grocery giveaways are uh, on Nagel in Chicago, Irving Park, um, Elston, uh, Thatcher, uh, and a couple of others. Uh, again, if this is something that you are interested in, he said that uh, these are gonna. This is gonna start tomorrow, Saturday, November nineteenth, at seven a.m. And um, there are. At least 20 Chicago gas stations. There's one in Indiana and at least six different grocery stores. The grocery stores uh, don't all start at 7 a.m. Depends on the store. Uh, the gas giveaway starts at 7 a.m. The grocery stores, some start at 8, some 9, some 9.30, some 10.30, and some at noon. Facebook.com slash Dr. Willie Wilson. Okay. Um, and you know what, if you, you might want to look up the list just to try to determine if you live in one of those areas, because when this happens, it has happened before that it has really tied up neighborhoods. It has really, really tied up traffic. Um, so you might want to just know where this is happening so you can avoid those areas. I want to, um, we're going to be in the from 430 to five. We are going to be talking with Jacob Kaplan. He's head of the Cook County Dems. You know, we went out and did remotes Grundy, LaSalle, um, Will County and talked to a lot of the Democratic organizations and a lot of the candidates. And most places did really, really well. I have to tell you, though, uh, Cook County. You're looking for a blue wave. Cook County is where you look. The results were tremendous. So from 4.30 to 5, we're going to be speaking with Jacob Kaplan and going over some of the victories that we can celebrate. We should continue to celebrate. You know, we didn't necessarily hang on to the House. Okay, we didn't. But we definitely hung on to the Senate. We might even be bumping up a seat in the Senate. And as one one of the political newsletters I read this morning said, you know, we've really got to make sure we win in Georgia because then either Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin is somebody we can ignore going forward. And won't that feel good? Yes, actually, it will feel good. But, you know, don't let anybody tell you because we didn't retain the House as well as the Senate that we didn't do well in this election. We defeated nearly all of the election deniers that were on the ballot. Almost every one of Trump's candidates and at least five candidates. Don't let anybody lead you astray on this. At least five candidates that were endorsed by Ron DeSantis were also defeated. We didn't win every race, but this was an enormous accomplishment. It cannot be understated. We were supposed to get wiped off the face of the earth. History said it. Republicans were saying it. Pollsters were saying it. Black voters, young people, 
came out like never before. And when those, when black women, when black men and the youth vote come out in large numbers, Democrats win. Democrats win. There are more of us than there are of them. You know, I was, um, every once in a while, I don't always share them, but I always listen to the videos posted by Politics Girl. She's uh, a woman who talks about what's going on politically in the most kitchen table, common sense ways that you're ever going to hear it. And I was really struck. I was listening to something she posted recently about how the Democrats shouldn't be disappointed. And if you are disappointed, you really need to change the way you think about this last election. You know what? Let's um, I know Paul Shavari back in the studio has that audio. Let Paul go ahead and play it for us now. Politics girl. I'm seeing a lot of people complain about the results of the midterms, that the Republicans took the House, that Trump is running for president again, that the DOJ still isn't doing anything. And it upsets me because it's so freaking defeatist. Democracy is hard work. One of the reasons it got as bad as it did in America is because it's such hard work. People didn't want to do it. They didn't vote. They didn't pay attention. And we let a lot of self-serving bad people take over. We were asleep at the wheel while the Federalist Society stacked our courts. We were asleep at the wheel while our education system was dismantled. We were asleep at the wheel when the Fairness Doctrine was taken away and right-wing radio and propaganda television were allowed to rise unchallenged. We were asleep at the wheel while billionaires bought our politicians and supported them rigging the election apparatus. And when you fall asleep at the wheel, you get into an accident. And this country had a major accident. We wrapped the country around a tree with Donald Trump. It was ugly and bloody and devastating. Donald Trump tried to steal our democracy from us. With the help of his enablers and the Republican Party and the court system, he tried to take the wheel from the voters. And when that didn't work, he sent a mob of angry insurrectionists to tear the car apart. He would have done anything to stay in power, including kill democracy. He and the people who came before him had already destroyed so much that the country wasn't even in very great shape on impact. Democracy didn't die in the crash. But it is deeply injured, and it's going to be a long, hard road to recovery. The midterm elections were like the first day of rehab where we took a step, one step after being told we should be dead. The midterms were sheer will and hope, and yes, a step towards healing, towards being the country we want to be. And there are people out here saying it's not good enough, that we're a big disappointment because things aren't totally fixed? Um, no, man, we were in a traumatic accident. We're a total mess. It's going to take a long time until we even resemble what we want to. But we're doing our best. And we need people who are willing to do their best with us. People who will celebrate our wins. Wins like the election deniers who are running to count the ballots in 2024, losing. That's a win. That's lifting up our arm and touching our nose. A win is all the election denying governors losing. That's picking up a ball. Even if it's just by a couple of inches, cheer for us. The worst of the worst new senators, the anti-Semites, the misogynists, the racists, they all lost. That is the equivalent of being able to hold ourselves up for a couple of seconds with no one helping. Have you ever seen someone in recovery? It's hard to watch. The gains are slow and painful. And yeah, we're not where we want to be, but considering the alternative, we're doing pretty well. Okay, we lost the House, but we kept the Senate. You can't get anything done without the Senate. We all saw that when the roles were reversed. 
We have a long road ahead of us, and 2024 is going to be an uphill battle. So we need warriors, not complainers. We need people pushing democracy forward every day, celebrating each win as we move towards healing. We need people saying, you can do it, America, one foot in front of the other. You got this. I know it's painful. I know it hurts. I know you wish it was different, but you have to keep fighting. We don't need people telling us it's not good enough, that we're not healing fast enough. We will heal. We will grow. We will get better, not from one election, but from one election at a time. So be brave, expect setbacks, and cheer your country on. With enough people on our side, we'll walk again. Hell, we'll run. And if you can't get behind that, then sit down till you find your courage. The rest of us don't want to hear it. We're too busy doing the work. And the work continues. I am still on all the email lists. Tenth Dems are still meeting. All the indivisible groups are still meeting. A lot of the indivisible groups, rural indivisible, Chicago indivisible, they're focusing on Georgia and what we need to do for Georgia. It isn't just, yes, you know, you took last weekend, you patted yourself on the back, you put your feet up, you had an adult beverage, and you said, job well done. Now, that's terrific. Now you get back up off the couch and you say, what's next? What's next? What's next is Georgia. The runoff early voting starts the 28th of this month. Um, people go to the polls on December 6th. And after that, in Chicago, we have a mayoral race. There are always municipal elections. And you know what? And if there isn't any election coming up, spend some time Find out, go to your village meetings, go to the city council meetings or log on to them remotely if you can. Make sure the people you have put in office are doing what they promised to do. Make sure that they are doing what you wanted them to do. No more. No more just sticking our heads in the sand and waking up next time there's an election. You know, I was talking to Isaac Wright And he said that if we want to win, particularly if Democrats want to start winning in rural areas the way Democrats once won in rural areas, we have to have infrastructure. We have to have organizations. We have to have county Democratic organizations. We have to have local Democratic organizations. We have to have activist Democratic organizations who are out there walking and talking 365 days a year. We can't just show up in these areas right before an election and expect anybody to listen when we haven't been there the rest of the time. Tom Hartman has it nailed. Democracy is not a spectator sport. You got to get up. You got to get off the couch and you got to get involved. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of the big news stories of the week, of course, was Nancy Pelosi's big announcement that she is not going to seek a leadership position in the upcoming Congress. She is, however, going to stay in Congress. She is going to represent San Francisco, as she has done for many, many, many years And uh, she didn't say this in her goodbye speech, but privately she has told people that she supports Hakeem Jeffries to be the leader 
of the Democrats. They will be a minority party, uh, but they will still have all of the leadership positions filled. And uh, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Hakeem Jeffries, who is this guy? His name sounds familiar. Hakeem Jeffries has been um, a member of the Judiciary Committee. We have heard him interviewed when uh, Trump was impeached the first time around. And I wanted to give you a little slice. We kind of went to the Wayback Machine when uh, he was part of the Judiciary Committee. And uh, he was talking about Clarence Thomas. I played this a long, long time ago, so it might sound familiar to you. But I want to share it with you again, because I think it's important to know who this guy is, not just his resume, but who this man is and what kinds of ideas does he espouse? What is he willing to put on the table? And I think this statement he made when he was talking about January 6th and Clarence Thomas really gives you some good insight into who Hakeem Jeffries is. Listen to this soundbite. And if Justice Thomas really wants to deal with bullying in America or this problem of people supposedly unwilling to accept outcomes that they don't like, I've got some advice for Justice Thomas. Start in your own home. Have a conversation with Jeannie Thomas. She refused to accept the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. Why? Because she didn't like the outcome. And so instead, she tried to steal the election, overthrow the United States government, and install a tyrant. That's bullying. That's being unwilling to accept an outcome because you don't like the results. Because the former twice-impeached so-called president of the United States of America lost legitimately to Joe Biden. How did she respond? Instead, she said, the Bidens should face a military tribunal in Guantanamo Bay on trumped-up charges of sedition. You've got to be kidding me. And lastly, let me ask this question of Brother Thomas. Why are you such a hater? Hate on civil rights. Hate on women's rights. Hate on reproductive rights. Hate on voting rights. Hate on marital rights. Hate on equal protection under the law. Hate on liberty and justice for all. Hate on free and fair elections. Why are you such a hater? And you think you can get away with it, escape public scrutiny. Because you think that shamelessness is your superpower? Well, Mr. Chairman, a point well, of order. Here's a news flash Mr. Chairman, straight from the House Judiciary Committee. Point of order. Truth Time pressed to the ground will rise Time. again, and truth will Time. be your kryptonite. That is the new leader of the Democrats in Congress. I think he is a fine choice. A couple other news stories I, I mentioned earlier but didn't really have a chance to give you the information Uh, Carrie Lake, who ran against Katie Hobbs to be the next governor of Arizona and who lost, is, as she said, she said this would happen. Uh, She's not accepting the results. She said she's going to pursue all legal means to, I don't know, overturn the election, dig in. I don't know what she she's, but she's going to do it. And um, guess who just went to Mar-a-Lago? Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake, how much you want to bet she's making her pitch to be Donald Trump's vice president? She has, by all accounts, said that that's one of the things that she wants. 
So Carrie Lake off to Mar-a-Lago, refusing to concede and um, probably going to be filing some court challenges to something or other. By the way, the Lauren Boebert race in Colorado, it actually has not um, officially been put to bed. Yes, it looks like Lauren Boebert is going to end up with a few votes more than her Democratic challenger, but they have a provision in Colorado where if a race is within a certain number of votes close, there's an automatic recount. And it appears that this race is going to uh, trigger the automatic recount. So, you know, there's still a glimmer of hope. There's still a glimmer of hope. And for any of you who were on Twitter last night, Okay, Elon Musk bought Twitter. He immediately fired half of the 7,500 people who work there, left him with the those who were left, uh, sent out an email or a Slack message or whatever, reached out to all of them and said that if you're not willing to basically work your butt off, you know, and maybe come in early and maybe stay late and maybe miss a few meals, if you're not willing to go hardcore, we don't want you. Let me know by Thursday at 5 p.m. Well, much apparently to Mr. Musk's surprise, the resignations started pouring in, pouring in to the extent that they announced that they were closing the building today. The Twitter building in San Francisco is closed. All of the badges, the employee badges have been deactivated so nobody can get in. Apparently, Elon Musk was worried that some of these people who were leaving would sabotage the code, sabotage Twitter on the way out. And at first I thought, oh, that's overreacting. But then um, last night, Twitter has one of those news crawls on the outside of the building, you know, one of those things where it's all lit up. And like they have out on State Street out in front of Channel 7, where it's like, oh, you know, it's like a news, this it's like a news headline banner that travels around the building. Somebody rewrote it last night. Somebody rewrote it, and the banner that kept circulating were all of these names that the Twitter employees were calling Elon Musk. Trust fund baby, petulant child, man child. I mean, it was it was nonstop. They just circulated and circulated and circulated. Supreme parasite petulant pimple, apartheid profiteer, dictator's mm, butt kisser, lawless oligarch. This was what was on the Twitter crawl on the building last night. Somebody got in and changed it before they all got locked out of the building. <laughs> uh, so the fun continues. We are going to take a break. We're going to talk about Cook County politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Jacob Kaplan is the executive director of the Cook County Democrats. He continues our good story about what happened this midterm election, because whether or not we saw it in other parts of the country, there was a blue wave in Cook County. Jacob, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Joe. So um, tell me, tell me, tell me about this blue wave. 
Yeah. I mean, we had a, uh, an amazing night here in, uh, in Cook County on election night. You know, we, we of course carried all of our democratic countywide office holders. We, uh, we won important referendums, you know, helping to boost the margin of the workers' right referendum, uh, statewide, the workers' rights amendment. And we won the forest preserve referendum, increasing the, uh, you know, the uh, sales tax or sorry, the property tax, a very small amounts for homeowners to uh, help improvements at the Forest Preserve District that passed by a wide margin. And we also uh, won, uh, flipped the county board seat here in Cook County. Uh, you know, the, the, the race between Maggie Trevor and Matt Pogorski took a few days to call because of a mail-in ballots to count. But Maggie De- uh, Trevor, the Democrat who we supported, is now uh, up by 481 votes. So, uh, she has flipped that seat from Republican to Democratic hands, meaning that now we have a 16 to 1 majority on the Cook County board, just one Republican left. So <laughs> overall, it was a great night in Cook County, and uh, we're very proud of our efforts helping our county ticket and, and the rest of uh, the candidates statewide, of course, as well. Why do you think the Democratic candidates were so successful in Cook County? Well, I think it's uh, yeah, certainly people were were fired up to vote as they were in other areas for uh, uh, numerous reasons. Certainly choice was a big part of it, uh, even though, you know, the county board may not have, uh, you know, direct uh, implications on abortion policy. You know, uh, Maggie Trevor, for instance, was running against an anti-choice Republican. So, uh, you know, that's that when once you get the word out about that, I think people or or, or as we like to call them, just Republicans. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think they're all anti-choice now. Yeah. Right so, <laughs> no, it was, uh, you know, so choice was a big issue that was uh, motivating voters. Uh, and just in general, I think, uh, like you saw nationwide, it's just the Republicans have become so extreme, whether it's Cook County, whether it's uh, the Collar County, state of Illinois, or or in other places around the country, you know, the people just were excited to vote against Republicans because they represent. So, you know, even though here in Cook County we did not have, for instance, the Supreme Court races at the top of the ballot, nor did we have very many contested congressional races, you know, people still were excited to turn out for uh, for the Democratic ticket. And, uh, you know, that's that's not always a, a sure thing in a midterm election. So uh, we were very happy of, uh, you know, of, of the results of, of this election just last week. Uh, was there anything that surprised you? Were there any candidates that got more votes or uh, fewer votes than you expected? Any any races that you were paying attention to particularly? Uh, I would say I, I'm just impressed by the margins that a lot of the candidates got. For instance, just seeing how well Governor Pritzker did in Chicago and Cook County. I mean, some of these Chicago wards, Pritzker literally got 95% of the votes. I mean, that's <laughs> just incredible margins. Uh, even, you know, I, I mean, I've been through a couple gubernatorial elections here, and I've just never really seen a margin like that for, I mean, Democrats would always do really well, of course, but, but mm-hmm. 95%, I mean, it just goes to show how unpopular Bailey really was, uh, particularly in, in communities of color here in Chicago. No, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, just seeing the margins of Democrats, whether you're talking about those statewide candidates or countywide candidates, Tony Preckwinkle, you know, racking up a 68% uh, win for board presidents. I mean, it's, and, and the huge margins that we got for the workers' rights amendments here in Cook County that helped carry it over the line. I mean, it was just heartening to see that uh, so many voters were, uh, you know, interested in in, in voting and uh, supportive of the Democratic agenda and, and saw the importance of voting for these things. So I, I can't uh, point to 
to one thing, but overall it was just the results as a whole were very, uh, were very heartening. And, you know, we still have work to do. We always have work to do and I don't want to ever take anything for granted. You know, there's going to be, of course, there's always another election around the corner, but I do think we should, you know, spend at least a little time celebrating our wins and, uh, and, uh, celebrating the fact that, you know, so many great candidates uh, were brought across the finish line here in Chicago, Illinois, and, uh, and across the country. You know, one of the things that Republicans are talking about a lot these days uh, is quality of candidates. How, I mean, I know that we're very, we're a very divided country, and a lot of people simply vote party line because they just don't want the other party to be in power. But so how much of a factor is it to have a real quality candidate in a race? I think it makes a difference. I, I think it's still, it's true. We have become more divided and more tribal in a way where people are more likely to vote for the Democrat or the Republican if you are a Democrat or Republican just because of the DRR by their name. But, you know, there, even though there are less independent voters, there still are some, and there still are some Republicans that are still, uh, you know, considering themselves Republicans that are less likely to vote for some of these really extreme candidates. I mean, you know, it's, I, I believe if there was a somewhat quote unquote normal Republican that ran for governor here in Illinois instead of Darren Bailey, for instance, I think they would have gotten a lot more votes. I mean, Bailey was just such an extremist on so many issues, whether you're talking about abortion, labor rights, you know, you, you name it. He was just a extreme social conservative, and that doesn't fly here. In Illinois. So, you know, a different candidate with different views, even if they were Republican, may have done a bit better. I just don't think they would have beat Jimmy Pritzker. But, you know, it's it's candidate quality does matter. You saw that across mm-hmm. the country with, uh, you know, some of these congressional races where if the Republicans had nominated uh, candidates that were a bit more uh, moderate or had beaten those moderate candidates in primaries, they probably would have won and Republicans would have picked up more seats. But you can't nominate these extreme anti-choice election denying candidates and assume that you're going to pick up the uh, independent voters or even you may lose some of your Republican base. So I do think that if the Republicans were smart, they'd start uh, trying to figure out a way to deal with this issue. But, you know, how do you deal with it when your your base is so uh, loves these extreme candidates and they keep voting for them in primaries? I don't know. It's a tough, tough, uh, tough quandary on the other side of the aisle. That's for sure. You know, we've always had, um, it seems to me, a lot of middle-of-the-road politicians. I mean, you look back, Chuck Percy was a Republican. You know, Mark Kirk was certainly not a Republican that you'd recognize today. And I guess I, there was a part of me that thought maybe Illinois would always have that kind of attitude, those kinds of candidates. But with this last election, especially downstate in the Republican Party, uh, you saw a lot of really extreme candidates winning their primaries and ending up on the ballot. Is, is Are we becoming as divided as we see it at the national level? I mean, as you said, there used to be a brand of moderate Republicans here in Illinois that could get elected, could get a lot of votes even in suburban areas around Chicago. You know, I mean, look at Jim Thompson, who was governor, Republican governor for, I think, four terms. I mean, longest serving governor in Illinois history, a very popular Republican. I mean, a lot of Democrats voted for him. So, I mean, if they run more moderate candidates, they'll have a better shot here 
in Illinois, but in a state where Trump is extremely unpopular and, you know, it's a pro-choice state, you can't run anti-choice pro-Trump candidates and assume that uh, you're going to get these sorts of votes. So the more and more, and we see this election cycle after election cycle, the Republicans here in Illinois keep dominating extreme candidates. And I know that some of the leadership, for instance, uh, Jim Durkin, uh, leader in the legislature, just uh, left, basically said this. He said, if if we don't begin to to nominate uh, moderate candidates or candidates are at least somewhat more moderate than the candidates we've, we've been nominating. I mean, we're just going to keep losing. But how do you do that when the Republican base, it turns out, in primary elections is so far to the right? And exactly. I, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough, but that's what they have to deal with. Yeah. Um, we need to, to take a real quick break. I'm joined by Jacob Kaplan, who is an executive director with the Cook County Dems. Uh, we had a blue wave here in Cook County. We're going to talk more about that right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Jacob Kaplan. He is with the Cook County Democratic Party. And uh, the Cook County Democratic Party, in case you weren't paying attention, did very, very well in this last midterm election. Jacob, what does it mean for the people who live in Cook County to have elected 16 out of uh, 16 seats to Dems as out of the 17 that were up? Well, it means that uh, the county board uh, continues to do its, uh, its good work, you know, uh, with the hosp- improvements to the hospital system. There's a lot of improvements coming down the line in terms of uh, mental health. Uh, President Preckwinkle has plans to show up a board that can, uh, you know, vote, vote, uh, with her on, on those issues, it, it'll be improvements to uh, whether you're talking about uh, the transportation system here in Cook County, bike paths, the forest preserves. I mean, all these things that the county votes on and, and uh, you, you know uses your tax dollars for will have a solid Democratic majority on the board to uh, support those items. And, you know, it's not so much. I mean, let's be honest. Before this, we had a 15 to two member board. So it's not like 16 to one makes a huge difference. But I would say for the residents of that 16th uh, district that Maggie Trevor just won out in the the west and northwest suburbs, I mean, they will get a voice uh, for them that's uh, attuned to their issues. Again, whether it comes to forest preserves, whether it comes to green infrastructure, improvements to mental health services that the county could provide. I mean, it's all about representation. I think it's better to have a Democrat in that seat than a Republican. I mean, of course, <laughs> I'm going to say that as the executive director of the Democratic Party, but I, I mean, I just think it's a good thing for the, uh, the citizens of that district. So, and a good thing for the county as a whole. And it also makes life a little bit easier. I mean, uh, Tony Preckwinkle's budget just sort of flew through. Um, there's not a lot of. Um there, you know, there, there isn't a lot of obstruction when you, when you have yeah. all the the majority of the seats. Yeah, unanimously just yesterday. Not even the uh, even the two Republicans on the board voted for it. So, I mean, it's uh, you know, again, it's just important that people on the board that support uh, the agenda and uh, are good representatives of their constituents uh, wherever they live in the county. So that was a good outcome of this election. Because people don't always know exactly how uh, the mechanics of all this works. Jacob, explain what you do um, and what kind of interaction do you have with somebody like Tony Preckwinkle? What are the kinds of things you talk about and what is your job and what is her job and how are they different? 
Sure. Well, well, Tony Preckwinkle, of course, is the president of the county board, but she's also chair of the Cook County Democratic Party. So she's my boss at the, at the party. Um, so I'm the executive director. So my job is to work with her, but also with the 80 elected Democratic committee persons of the party. So in every all 50 wards of the city of Chicago and the 30 suburban townships, every four years, they elect the voters elect a Democratic committee person. It's all the way at the bottom of the ballot. Might have. You might not even think about it, but it's there, and that's you elect those folks, and those are the folks I work with at the party, and those are the representatives of the Democratic Party in that ward or township, and they come together as the Cook County Democratic Party to endorse candidates every two years, to endorse issues. For instance, we endorsed an elected school board for the city of Chicago, and that, of course, passed the legislature. Uh, to endorse, uh, you know, referenda, like we just endorsed the Workers' Rights Amendment and the Forest Preserve referendum, and ultimately to make sure that those the voters know about those issues and know about our endorsements and that we win. So it's all about, uh, you know, coordinating uh, meetings of committee persons so when they get together and endorse candidates, uh, kind of being the voice of the Democratic Party, and also, again, making sure that whoever we endorse uh, wins. And, you know, I can say, Having been at the party now since 2014, I, this is probably the best election cycle we've had so far, at least for a general election. I've never <laughs> had a, uh, a cycle yet where we, we won every single candidate in every race we got involved in, we won. So it's, uh, it's just amazing, again, knowing that this was a tough environment on paper, you know, being that, uh, you know, Republican or Democrat in the White House and uh, inflation, uh, economic issues. I, if you had asked me a few months ago, I would not have expected that we would win every single race, but we did. And we're very proud of the work that uh, we put into the, in this election, and we're going to keep doing that going forward. Um, here, here's the thing: How do you? I want to ask how you pick a candidate, what you look for in a candidate, and I know that most people, if they think they want to run for office. If they get an audience with somebody in a position of power, one of the things they're always asked is, well, what have you been doing so far? You know, what campaigns have you supported? What efforts have you made? You know, because you want somebody, A, who's committed. But a lot of times, like I'll see somebody, whether it's an older person or a congressperson who's vacating their seat, and the person they nominate is, oh, I want my chief of staff. And so I understand wanting the involvement and the commitment, but sometimes it seems like, you know, that almost like handing it off to your son or daughter, it seems insular. Like, like, so how do you balance those two things? Well, what I would say is, you know, that there is a reputation for that, certainly in Chicago politics and in the history of the party. But one of the things that we've tried to change over the years is to make it a more open process. And so we have, you know, if anybody's interested in running for one of these spots, you know, whether it's anything from, you know, at the top of the ticket, uh, countywide offices down to water reclamation district and judges here in Cook County. I mean, we have a slating process that's uh, multi-step. It's probably going to start next year in June, honestly, for the 2024 election. And it's open. I mean, you can come, you can present your credentials to committee persons, you can they ask questions, you you meet with them individually, and then ultimately it's a vote. It's a weighted vote of the committee person, the democratic system, a small d, uh, as to who we're going to endorse. And it's not, I mean, in the old days, a lot of it was who you know, and I'm not going to say that's never, uh, you know, that has no importance, but it's also about qualifications. And we 
honestly look very in-depth at the resumes and the background of folks. We want people that are involved in their communities and, uh, you know, are going to be good representatives of the people because they're active in their community. And, you know, like, when you talk about judicial candidates, we want to make sure we're endorsing candidates who have generally good bar ratings and are attorneys that have been involved, not just on the legal front of things, but in in community events and uh, helping in their in their neighborhood, things like that. So it's a multitude of factors that goes into when we, you know, our endorsements. But uh, it's not just a who you know system anymore. Those days mm-hmm. are gone. And that's uh, we're proud of that here at the party that we've made it more open. And did I just hear you say very quietly that you are probably going to get started on 2024 this June? Yep. Yep. We'll be starting in June because assuming that the primary is back to its normal March, uh, March of 2024, as it has been in the past, uh, we will be endorsing candidates. Uh, it's starting that process in June and making our final endorsements in August ahead of when, uh, wow. likely started in, you know, around Labor Day. So it'll, it's right around the corner. 2024 is almost, you know, like for us, it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's coming up soon. So it never stops yeah. here at the party. <laughs> now, I know you're, you're ahead of uh, the Cook County Dems. What involvement, if any, will you have in the Chicago mayoral race? So the party actually is not involved in the mayor's race or any of the municipal elections. Uh, those are nonpartisan, so uh, there's no Democrat or Republican. You don't run under those labels. So we actually don't make any endorsements in the mayor's race or for aldermanic candidates or anything else that else that's up in that cycle. I mean, I, I, you know, many of our committee persons in the party are also aldermen, so they'll be running. Many of them will be endorsing. Uh, mayoral candidates, but the party as a whole does not get involved in uh, in mayor's races or or any municipal elections. Besides, you're worrying about 2024. Your plate is going to be full. I'm 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 yeah. proud. I'm actually proud that the work starts so early because um, I've been talking with a lot of you know strategists and consultants in politics. And one of the things that they all say is there needs to be an effort 365 days a year. It can't just be, oh, we got an election in two weeks. What are we going to do? Okay, we better do it fast. You know? Yep, absolutely. We have to always be looking for new candidates, recruiting new candidates, building a bench. And that's why we, we get such an early start on these things. And we have to just stay always involved, telling people about the good things that Democrats are doing, whether it's locally or nationally, staying connected with with uh, Democratic voters. And you're right. It's not it's in some places. It's like you know, the minute the election happens, everyone just uh, kind of goes on vacation for another year. So <laughs> exactly. It's, it's and that's that's not what we do here at the Cook County Democratic Party. We're always uh, once one election's over, we take a little breather and then we're on to the next one. Yep. That's how it works. Paul, thank you so much. Um, Jacob, I'm sorry. I just, I've just blanked. I, Paul is back in the studio. You know, I get, I get you guys confused. Sorry, Paul, back in the studio. Just ignore me. Um, I wasn't trying to get your attention. Uh, thank you, Jacob, for joining us today. It's important to celebrate when we do well. I mean, even if we're in a blue area and a blue county, you know, it still doesn't mean you don't have to do the work and you don't have to get out there and get the votes. And you did great for both. And thank you so much for sharing that um, success with us. Thanks so much, Joan. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jacob. Now, now it's back to Paul, Paul Shivari, who has been um, filling in for Lady B today. A thank you. 
We are going to be back here in the saddle this coming Monday. Right now, Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Have a great weekend. Decide what you're going to do to help in Georgia. Maybe you're going to get involved in the mayor's race. Think about it. Make a plan. 365 days a year, we are involved in this. Okay? No more sitting out. Have a great weekend. Have some fun. I will see you on Monday. Good night.